Well, friends, this episode has everything. It's fun. It's fascinating. It's uplifting. Hello, this is the Metaphysical Podcast Conversations and Partnership with the Seattle Metaphysical Library. I'm Lara here with uncommonly spectacular human Jen Mason. Jen worked for 10 years at a domestic violence and rape crisis center before starting her inclusive sex shop, Wink Wink, getting certified as a sex coach and being elected to her local school board. She focuses on pleasure after trauma and how to do better for survivors, including holding hope for survivors that sex can be amazing and wonderful after they've experienced a violation and recognizing that having a relationship with our own bodies and positive eroticism can be healing. What an amazing, hopeful message. Please check it out. You definitely won't regret it. I'm Jen Mason. I use she, her pronouns, and I am the owner of Wink Wink, which is a inclusive, um, woman-owned, all-ages, not-creepy sex shop in Bellingham, and we're a retail store, but we also offer um, educational classes. I am a certified sex coach and sex educator, so I also do one-on-one appointments with people to help them to reach their intimacy goals, and I teach some of our educational classes. Outside the shop, I was elected to the Bellingham School Board in 2017 and re-elected last year, so I still serve as a Bellingham School Board Director, and I am a mom. I'm a parent to my beautiful, wonderful eight-year-old daughter, Luella, who suffered a traumatic brain injury at birth and um, is significantly impacted by cerebral palsy. But she is the the world's most red-haired redhead, and she loves music and she's just the joy of our life. So that is, that's kind of me in a nutshell, lots of stuff going on. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um, Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, I thought maybe I could talk a little bit about how I came across Wink Wink, which by the way, I really love the name. It's like the cutest possible name. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I wanted to name that um, my, I would I would be okay with like my mom saying, (laughs) so it's like, wink, wink. That's a, that's like a user-friendly sex shop name. (laughs) Right. Very cute. Mm -hmm. Um, it gets the point across, but you know, (laughs) so yeah. So a couple of years ago, I don't know exactly when I, um, but it was pre COVID. So it was the before times I had a friend from out of town visiting me and I live in Edmond. So just North of Seattle And she was like, well, why don't we just check out Bellingham? Because she's a huge fan of the show Supernatural. And she knew that Misha Collins (laughs) lives in Bellingham. So um, neither of us had been. So we just drove up. And I think we literally just walked past Wink Wink, like first thing. And we were like, we have to go in there. So we went in and right up front was a book called The Threesome Handbook by Victoria Fantock. Is that how? Uh-huh. And so that was at the time Misha Khan's wife. So we're like, wow, this is just, we're just in the right place right now. <laughs> um, anyway, I just, I loved it. Like I bought this little clitoris sticker and I had it like sneakily on the bottom of my work laptop for like years. And I bought this little poster and we just chatted and I thought it was so fun. Um, but yeah, so I really, I hope to, I've never been to one of your classes though. Like I would love to get more involved, especially now that things are opening up. Yeah. And we're doing some of our classes, um, online and in person. So even if you can't be in Bellingham, um, some of them are available online, you know, now, now that we're in the, the sort of after times we're doing a lot of stuff hybrid now. (laughs) Yeah, that's perfect. That's awesome. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so you talked a little bit about what Wink Wink is. Um, do you want to say how it got started? Yeah, sure. So um, I worked for about 10 years at um, a domestic violence and rape crisis center, and I was doing um, primarily education work, like working with young people in schools. Um uh, and teaching consent workshops and about healthy relationships. And I also did fundraising and grant writing and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I left, um, that job when I had my daughter, but I knew that I wanted to kind of come back to the work somehow, um, because it was really important to me and really where my heart is, is kind of helping people in these vulnerable spaces. Um, and during the time after I left that job and I had my daughter, I, um, really kind of started doing a lot more reading about like sex positivity and my own kind of personal exploration around sexual pleasure. Um, cause you know, things shift a lot after, after you have a kid for a lot of people. Um, and I literally just kind of had the idea one day we were on vacation and I was like, Oh, I want to start a sex shop. <laughs> this is what Bellingham needs is we need like a cool, a cool sex shop. And it was just um, sort of an idea out of nowhere. And I kind of just plugged away at it and kept waiting for somebody to say, no, that can't happen. Or that's not a good idea. Um, and I started, I did, I started as a pop-up shop. I literally um, popped up the first time at a bar on Valentine's day. I was like the lady in the side room with um, sex toys. And, um, and it, we sold out of like almost all of our inventory. Um, and then I popped up uh, for a summer at a Bellingham's night market. Um, so they um, invited me to have a booth there and I popped it there. I did some pop-up classes and just really saw like there is a need and there is a want for this kind of place in Bellingham. People were looking for this. And so, um, in 2018, I opened, um, a brick and mortar. Um, and that was probably where you came to was, um, our little tiny shoe box of a shop. Um, and then, in 2021, uh, we actually moved locations right across the street and opened a space that's about two and a half times bigger than our initial shop. So we've been lucky enough to be able to grow into a, into a bigger space as more people have learned about what we do and, and the mission of who we are. So it's been literally starting from a table full of sex toys, um, you know, at a bar to our, uh, our nice big brick and mortar location. So it's been, it's been a journey. Wow. Yeah. That's really impressive. Wow. I mean, did you have to like fundraise or like, how do you just, that's amazing. Yeah. I am lucky that I'm coming from a place of privilege, which I recognize is not true for many small business owners. You know, we were able to fund this, um, venture ourselves, but you know, I started really, really small. And so, um, you know, starting with the pop-up was such a tiny little, tiny little thing. And then even the first store was really small, but, um, you know, when we moved into the bigger store, it was really our community that was able to make that happen in terms of like, we'd done so well at our first little teensy tiny location. That was what enabled me to move into a bigger spot was, um, was having, was having so much support and, um, and people in this community who were committed to buying local and shopping local independent businesses. Um, and that was really what, um, 
what enabled me to move into the bigger location was just the support from this community. Wow. That is so cool. I love that. Yeah. I'll definitely have to come check out the bigger one. Yeah. Cause I definitely saw the small one. Yeah. But it was so cute. So all <laughs> is good. Yes. We did what we could with the small space and then, um, we just grew out of it. So the, the larger space has a lot more, um, selection and room to look around and stuff. Awesome. Yeah. And so it seems like definitely a big part of the mission of the store is to be both open and inclusive. And you talk about that on the website. So, um, did you just always know it was going to be like that or did that kind of develop? No, I always knew it was going to, was going to be like that. Um, some of the specific ways that we have worked on inclusivity have, have developed over time, but, um, that was always going to be part of the, of the kind of mission of the business, um, was making sure that we were accessible to as many people as we can also understanding that we're still a business at the end of the day, but it was really important to me that I don't as best as possible that I don't add to inequities that I don't add to, um, add to the lack of access to information about sexual health or, um, sexual pleasure. And so for me, it was really important that, um, we do our best to understand, um, inequities in our community and that we try to make, what we're offering accessible to the most amount of people, whether that is offering scholarships to our classes or um, making our dress room, dressing rooms more accessible to the products that we carry in the store. So um, we have found since we've opened that there are ways that um, we can improve accessibility and we continue to try to be more inclusive over time. But that was always really um, from the very beginning part of part of what we were what we were going to do. Yeah, that's awesome. And I saw on your website that the not creepy phrase is kind of a reaction to how people typically think of a sex store. So yeah. do you think the typical sex store is like kind of geared towards the male gaze? Yeah. I mean, I think when you look at sex shops traditionally, um, you know, in history, um, many sex shops were designed for men. And in many cases, they really were a place for gay men. Um, and so, you know, I think that it's important to me to recognize that, like, I am only here with my shop because of the sex shops that came before me. And what we think of really as creepy sex shops is was because of safety and because of regulations. You know, it really wasn't safe for many people to be seen going into a sex shop. It wasn't safe for people to um, go in a place that was associated with gay men. And that's one of the reasons that sex shops traditionally looked the way that they do. There also in many cities are a lot of regulations about how sex shops can look. And so that like you know, um, not having windows that can be seen from the street in the locations that they're located in like industrial zones is a lot of because of laws. Um, and so, you know, I always like to make sure that I'm not, you know, my, my personal, um, view is that I'm like, I have, um, I have respect for those shops and what they were doing before, like the sex positive movement came along and like in some ways kind of made, um, made certain kinds of sex 
more acceptable. Um, they were doing this work before there was a sex positive movement. And that's really important. Um, that being said, I think there's a lot of people that don't feel comfortable, um, going into those shops that feel like, um, they're uncomfortable with the kind of like lack of windows or they're uncomfortable with what's in them. And so we're definitely, um, targeting our store towards a, a certain demographic that may feel less comfortable in traditional sex shops. Um, you know, the not creepy came from my customers of like, um, you know, they're like, Oh, this shop just feels not creepy. And I was like, Oh, that is, that's great. And we're going to adopt that as part of our slogan. Um, but for me personally, like I was just on vacation. I try to visit sex shops when I'm on vacation. And a lot of those are more traditional sex shops and, you know, they're still doing really important work and their communities. Like there's needs to be a place for everybody and sex positivity needs to be able to hold, um, both my kind of store and the more traditional stores. Um, but understanding that we serve different demographics and there's a different kind of, um, uh, person, a different interest in shopping at my store versus the other stores, if that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. Um, that is really, really interesting. Cause I didn't know any of that about the history of sex shops and that they were so regulated and that, um, you said they were often for gay men. Yeah. I mean, if you look, there's a great book called vibrator nation that I really recommend that, um, is, is about sex shops now, but also they go over kind of the history of sex shops. And it was something I read when I first opened the store, but a lot of sex shops were, um, its customers were gay men. Um, it was a place where men could, you know, talk with other men, um, or, um, have sexual relationships with other men. And, um, or even if they weren't gay, it was like, that was kind of the assumption was that they were gay men going into that store. So there were a lot of safety reasons why shops looked the way that they did. Um, but yeah, in many cities still, there are so many regulations, um, uh, about sex shops, about where they can be in the city, about how they have to look about how many, um, how much of their inventory can actually be sex toys. And so it's really difficult. I'm lucky to live in a community where, um, I was able to open a store right in the middle of our downtown and have big open windows. Um, and you know, the city of Bellingham is actually my landlord. Um, but that is like very, uh, not the case in many parts of the country, um, that there's, it, it's much more highly regulated. So sometimes what you're seeing and experiencing in stores is a result of regulations, which is interesting because it's almost like the regulations end up making the shops, um, seem more like they put them in, in like CD locations or they make them look more, um, you know, uh, or they make them look less, um, welcoming than they could if they were less regulated. So, yeah, well, that's really interesting. So it's like actually pushing them into the dark, the kind of the botanical yeah. laws. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Wow. <laughs> so sex shops do have a history of basically being a safe place or an inclusive space. Mm -hmm. And then, um, right now, wink, wink, being inclusive and kind of woman run, 
Is that, are you guys pretty unique or are there other places very similar in the country? There are places that are similar to us. And when I was doing my research, opening the shop, um, you know, I looked to a lot of the other places to see kind of what they were doing. Um, you know, Feelmore in Oakland um, is amazing. Um, Shebop in Portland. Bay Bland is one of the original, um, you know, feminist independent sex shops. Smitten Kitten. Um come as you are good vibrations. Like there's lots of other stores that are doing this, but it's still a, a very, very, very small minority compared to sex shops as a whole. Like what I consider sort of mission-based retailers with this kind of inclusive, um, you know, feminist, um, queer centric kind of bent to it is still a, a very small part of what's happening in terms of sex shops as a whole. Okay. And do you think that that hurts your business or helps your business as far as customers coming in? (laughs) I mean, for me, I, I, we see so many people who would not maybe be comfortable shopping in a traditional sex shop, um, or for whatever reason, for a variety of reasons are, are more comfortable with us than even like kind of a big box sex shop. You know, we know that there are some other um, larger sex shop chains that appeal to some people and don't appeal to others. And so we're really kind of um, a niche and we get a lot of folks in our store who I think just feel comfortable with us or um, we're like their entry point into sex shops um, or are shopping with us and maybe also going to some other stores, but feel comfortable in our store. We serve the vast majority of people who are coming into our store are um, women. We serve lots of queer and trans folks, um, but we don't have a lot of like cisgender men who are shopping in our store. Um, And we absolutely do not, um, dissuade cis men from being in our store. We have um, a lot of toys and we have a lot of books for everybody. But I think that the people who feel particularly comfortable with us are people who maybe aren't seeing themselves represented as much in other stores. So for us, it's we've really kind of worked to serve that part of the population really well. And it seems to be working for us. Very cool. Do you get people from just locally or from further away too? We get people from all over the place. We get people, a lot of people who are in Bellingham on vacation. Cause you know, a lot of people are like, Ooh, we're on vacation and we're going to hit up the sex shop. Um, yeah. You know, we get a lot of people um, like yourself that are like just walking down the street and stumbled upon us. And then we also have an online store. And so, you know, our social media followers are from from everywhere. And we get a lot of people who shop our online store from all over the U.S. So we're always sending shipments out to all over the place. And I think part of that is because, you know, people trust us. They trust um, the way we've curated what we carry in the store. Um, they trust, um, what we say about our products and how to use them. And so, you know, we've built, um, we've built a reputation. I think that is, you know, inclusive and accessible and also, and also trust. And I, I, um, really work to try and uphold that and uphold this level of service that people can trust. It's really important to me to not take that for granted. Um, I think there is definitely a very welcoming community feel in the store. I am someone who absolutely would have been shy 
but I remember standing in there and I don't, I don't think it was you, but whoever was behind the counter, I'm like, so is it clitoris or clitoris? (laughs) And I just felt comfortable right away, just asking questions and stuff. And it felt very welcoming to that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. A lot of people that come in our store, they've never been in a, they've never been in a sex shop before. And, um, you know, I have to remember that some amount of people, whether it's their first time or they've been in sex shops are nervous. And so we really try to make it feel the most like you can just be in here and look around and you don't, you don't have to know anything like, you know, you don't have to like know everything there is to know about sex toys before shopping with us. Like you can come in with zero knowledge and like no judgment at all. We all had to learn at some point and our staff is just really happy to answer questions or give tours of the store or whatever it is. Um, Okay, cool. So you have a storefront and then you also are a sex coach. Do you want to talk a little bit more about how you do that in partnership with Wink Wink? Yeah. So I got my sex coaching certification. Um, I finished it in the depths of COVID when we were all really at home all the time. I thought this is a good time to finish my sex coaching certification. And so what that allows me to do is um, to meet with people online or in person and to help them work around their intimacy goals. So it's a service I offer through the store. So people usually find out about it through Wink Wink. And, um, I have a little office at the shop. It's really great. You know, there are, there are a lot of folks who have concerns or desires or needs around sex, and they really want to figure out some strategies towards helping them get to where they want to be. And so, um, that's what I get to do as a coach is helping people figure out where they're at right now and where they want to be and some strategies for helping them get there. And it's been, um, it's been really wonderful to get to work with people around this because there are, there's a lot that I think we don't know around sex or we don't know how to get to where we want to be. And so I can really help people to achieve those goals. Awesome. So you work with clients around whatever, maybe they're struggling with or whatever their goals are. Is that ever discouraging to see kind of the problems that people come in with? Um, no, not necessarily. I mean, I think that, you know, I'm very aware that most of us, including myself, didn't learn that much about sex, um, in our lives. And if we learned about sex, we didn't really learn about how it might change over the course of our life or how relationships might change or how desire works. And so to me, it's really, I feel really honored to get to work with people in this part of their life and to help them have some movement around it. Many of the people who come to me are, they have desire differences with their partner. Like one partner, you know, wants to have more sex than the other partner. And so that's the crux of a lot of people that I see. And there's a lot that you can do about that. There's a lot of reframing thinking. There's a lot of strategies in how you can move forward. So I think it's, I, th- I think my experience is that it's actually really lovely and encouraging because often talking with people, it's like things that felt for them, maybe impossible, or like it had to be this way for the rest of their life. We can actually do something about it. There's actually work that can be done and there's strategies that they can employ. And you just don't know until, until you talk with somebody and find out. Why do you think, um, 
that desire disparities are so difficult for people to deal with? You know, I think that for many people, we just don't talk about sex that much. And that includes with our partners. A lot of people don't have super open communication around sex. And I think that makes a whole lot of sense based on how most of us were raised around sex and our culture around sex. And so there's just a lot of mind reading that is expected and a lack of open communication. So I think that's one issue. I think that um, we give meaning to a lot around sex. And so, you know, I think that sometimes it's like, well, my partner doesn't want to have sex. That must mean I'm bad at it, or I'm undesirable, or I'm this, or I'm that. Um, I think there's a lot of shame associated with sex. I, when I hear people having, you know, desire disparities, there's often shame on both parts. People who feel shame because they, they feel like they don't want to have sex very often and they feel shame around that. And there's often shame around the high desire person around, like, I want to have too much sex and I'm getting rejected. And that makes me feel shame. Um, you know, I think one of the issues also is that our template for what good sex looks, looks like is really informed by patriarchal views. And we tend to see you know, straight cis men as being very high desire people. And so we often make the, um, we make the assumption that like the high desire person is more correct or that that should be the ideal is like the higher desire person is more ideal. And often in like cis straight relationships, the higher desire person is often um, the man. And so I think sometimes desire disparities are one of the areas where we're really informed by heteronormative patriarchal views that have to be deconstructed. But desire disparities can can cause a lot of problems. And I see relationships that have ended because of desire disparities. And a lot of people feel like there's nothing that they can do about it. They just repeat the script over and over and over again with their partner, where there's kind of a an initiator and a rejector. And they, that script gets repeated over and over until maybe they're not having sex anymore or until the relationship ends. And so I think it can feel really hopeless But what I hope to let people know is like, there are ways to reframe that. And there are strategies to move ahead um, that can kind of get you unstuck. That's super fascinating and really, really cool work that you're doing. Thank you for sharing that. Well, I know you also um, have classes and you have parties. Do you want to talk about those things too? (laughs) Yes. Classes and parties are a big part of what we do at Wink Wink. You know, our classes are really informed by what the community has asked us that they want. And so we do classes on all different topics. We teach some of the classes ourselves, and sometimes we bring in other trainers or people to sit on panels. You know, for example, one of the classes that we're doing is a rewire your desire workshop, which really is about desire and how to spark more intimacy and eroticism in your relationships. We do rope bondage workshops. We've done, um, we've done, um, sex after trauma, like reclaiming your pleasure workshops. We do, um, all kinds of things. So really on the spectrum of from the kinky and fun to the more serious and, 
um, yeah, they're, they're really fun. We also do parties. We, um, we do sex trivia at local bars. We just hosted an after party for the hump film festival. So, um, we really try and, um, bring people in in as, in as many ways as we can and offer all different kinds of dynamics and education and just fun stuff. Because at the end of the day, sex can be a lot of different things. It can be hard. It can be healing. It can be fun. It can be erotic and can be intimate. And we really want to, um, you know, try and uh, try and honor all of those dynamics and, and, um, and serve all the different ways that, that we can. Yeah. I think one of the first things I noticed when I visited wink wink was, um, there was some classes listed and I think they were along the lines of like after childbirth, and then like talking to your kids. And I just remember being so impressed, like how, what an incredible resource to have, because like you said, sometimes that's never talked about or never taught. And it just felt almost like utopian that you would have a community of women who could talk to you about those things, you know? Yeah. It's cool. It's like, one of the questions we get a lot is like birth to teenagers. Um, but a lot of people were raised around sex in a way that they don't like, and they don't want to repeat, but they're not entirely sure what to actually do and say. And so it's been nice to be able to offer classes to parents who are like, I want to do better, but I need some direction, um, around sex positive parenting. So that's been a class we've offered a few times. That's awesome. And so it looks like sometimes you do bachelorette parties, but with a class twist, which is really fascinating. Have those been fun or interesting? Do you have funny stories? (laughs) they have been so fun. Yeah. We do private parties for any groups. A lot of times those are bachelorette parties. Um, but we offer like a sex toys 101 workshop and then the parties get run of our store after we're closed to shop and everything. And they're always, um, they're always a good time. We've had groups that are, um, yeah, we've had, my favorite was a group of people that were actually all coworkers, um, that did a bachelorette party together. And I was like, oh my gosh, I want to work at this workplace that feels comfortable enough for all the coworkers to get together and talk about sex toys together, people of all genders. So that was really fun. But, um, I love doing the private parties. It's like a great chance for people to, to learn a little bit more in the kind of an more intimate setting, smaller setting, um, and also have a really good time. They get to bring wine and food and yeah, it is having a party at a sex shop. Turns out you can't go wrong. (laughs) (laughs) That's super cool. Well, awesome. Um, when you were talking about yourself earlier, I definitely would love to ask you a little bit more about that. So you said you did a lot of work with survivors of sexual violence. So that sounds really, really challenging. And it's, it's interesting that you probably, I would assume, became very acquainted with, um, with sexual trauma. And then do you feel like that's because you're so informed that way that's helped you now bring sex positivity with wink, wink? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I am constantly reading books around, um, uh, pleasure after trauma. That's really kind of where my, um, my interest uh, is at that intersection is how do we do better for survivors? Um, and how do we not just kind of say, okay, well, you've experienced trauma and, uh, you're going to have triggers and all right, that's kind of the end of your healing process. Like how do we actually help people to have a better relationship with, 
with pleasure, um, you know, after they've experienced a trauma or a sexual violation of any kind. And um, what I have found, you know, I always say I went from the bad side of sex to the good side of sex. Like I worked specifically with trauma and now I'm like really working with sexual pleasure, but recognizing that many, many people have experienced sexual violations in their life. And so my customers are coming to me with backgrounds of, of violations. Like many of them are coming with those backgrounds. Many of my coaching clients have experienced various sexual violations. And, you know, I think that we have to recognize, like we can have a container that holds all of those things. And one of the things that I have, have seen from the, you know, sexual like victim advocacy movement is that um, it's so wonderful in helping people who have experienced trauma, but it doesn't necessarily weave in pleasure. It doesn't really weave in how can people experience pleasure afterwards. And the sex positive movement sometimes doesn't always honor um, sexual violations. And so to me, it's really important that we can hold both of those things at once and that we can um, that we can hold hope for survivors that sex can be amazing and wonderful um, a- after they've experienced a violation. You know, I think that we've become accustomed in, in many ways to talking about like sex um, for survivors is like sex, sex was weaponized, you know, sex was a really scary thing um, and it was weaponized against them, but also recognizing that sex itself can be healing. Um, Having a relationship with our own bodies and um, eroticism, experiencing like positive eroticism can be healing, whether that's with ourselves or with another person. And so I'm also really interested in how can we help people to not just tolerate sex and not just tolerate, you know, the erotic, but how can we actually use sexuality and pleasure as a tool for healing? And that's really my interest is where, where that intersection is. That is amazing. That's such a hopeful perspective. And I feel like it's much more humanizing for a survivor to acknowledge that they're still a full sexual person. They're not like just broken. Yeah. Um, that's really amazing. And I think that, like you said, a huge percentage of the population has, you know, very serious trauma, but I feel like almost everybody has a little bit of trauma just from the culture, <laughs> you know? So um, I think that kind of applies to everyone too. Yeah. I mean, just on that, like I have really adopted, um, use of the term sexual violations. Um, and that to me is much more encompassing of people's experiences. You know, a lot of, I feel like a lot of the work that I did with survivors was, um, around helping them to, to feel like they could use the label sexual assault, or they could use the, the, the terms. And it's like, I think that language is important and that labels are important if they're, you know, if they feel important to the survivor, like finding the right label. But to me, there's, it's like sexual assault, sexual offenses, consent. Those are all terms that were derived in many ways from the legal system. Um, And that we turn to the legal system to define 
what is consensual and what is not. And it's like the law doesn't define for me what is right and what is wrong. I define what's wrong and right for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's a lot that there's a lot that can feel scary or just unkind um, that maybe doesn't fit into the legal definition. And it's like, we need better language for people's experiences. Like we live in a culture that is really often unkind to people around sex. And that feels violating. Like there's a lot of things that people, um, experience around sexuality that like, I mean, I, I literally describe it as like unkind, like people treating you unkindly in a sexual setting. And like, it may not meet the definition of sexual assault, but as the, as the law states that are a sexual offense, but like being treated unkindly in a sexual way is violating and that feels bad. And there can be a lot of effects from that. And so I've really adopted the term sexual violation because I do think it encompasses more people's experiences and moves away from the idea that the law defines right and wrong, you know, personally, it's like the law can define what's right and wrong in a legal setting, but like, we need better language for like, I've been treated unkindly and that impacted me. And to me, that's why I've started using the term sexual violation. I love that. I love having really good language for that, that you're defining the meaning of as opposed yeah. to someone Yeah. Else. Awesome. Yeah. So you're talking a little bit about the school board earlier. Um, I definitely interested. Um, I was a substitute teacher for a couple of years and I have two brothers in their early forties who um, kind of, they have autism and they went through the special education system. So I'm really curious to hear um, what got you into that work, what you're doing and how you think people can get involved, just whatever you want to say about that kind of stuff. Yes. For a long time, I actually thought that I would maybe be a teacher. Um, when I worked at the Domestic Violence and Rape Crisis Center, I was working in middle schools and high schools for a very long time in classrooms. And I just love young people. I love particularly middle school students. I just um, have so much fun with, with, um, with young folks. But, you know, I really found that gosh, teaching teachers are incredible. And I think that I was like, this is not a job that I, <laughs> I can do. Um, and I really found that what I was interested in was education policy, like bigger picture. Um, how do you, you know, how do you shape the direction that an institution is going? You know, we need people at all levels. I mean, that's true. Just not even just inside the school system. Like you need people who are on the ground doing work and you also need people who are, who are looking like at where are we going? How do we set the vision? How do we move in the direction um, of correcting inequities? How do we remove systemic barriers over time? And that's slow work. You know, it's not work that happens overnight, but it's like, how do you help to shape a system so that over time you're making systemic change and that you're getting better and better at serving people, um, who are the most marginalized in our communities and serving everybody really well. And so I, for a very long time, really felt like serving, um, on the school board would be really where I wanted to be in the education system. I just, I just think that education is so interesting and so important for people who have children. Schools in many ways are really like the, the center point of the community. They're really the foundation of the, of the community. Um, 
So yeah, I ran for office in 2017. It was at the same time that I was working on wink, wink on the like beginning stages of wink, wink. And I kind of thought, well, one of these things won't work out probably, or both. Like I thought, well, I'll either lose the election or the shop, you know, it's a business idea. Those fall through all the time. And surely one of those things won't, won't work out. And, um, and then they both did. So (laughs) So it's fun. I get to hold both, both roles at the same time. I really admire that. So do you um, enjoy the work you do on the board? I love being on the school board and I, you know, just ran for reelection and I was lucky enough to have the support of the voters and um, win my reelection. And I love the work, you know, it's, um, it's really being able to look at kind of the big picture is so interesting to me and to, to really look at what does the district, what has the district decided that we want to do over time? Um, so it's not like we're not making decisions, the day-to-day decisions of the district. You know, I'm not an expert in what, um, what educators should be doing in their classrooms right now. Like I am not that person, but I really get to help with, um, You know, when we say we want to close the gap between um, students, for example, with lower incomes, their graduation rates versus students who don't have low incomes. It's like, how do we close that gap? You know, how do we make sure that everybody, you know, has the same access to um, higher education? How do we make sure? So it's it's great because, um, you know, what I get to do is to help shape those priorities, those big picture priorities, and to hold the district accountable towards making progress um, towards what we want to do. And we know that progress won't happen overnight. You know, it took a long time to build the inequitable systems that we're in, and it takes a long time to reshape them into something that is more equitable and, and more inclusive and more accessible. But I get to be part of holding the district accountable towards making progress. And so I just love that. Um, And with the added benefit that I get to do school visits and hear from students and hear from parents and get to visit schools. So I get to do some of the fun on the ground stuff also and meet a lot of interesting people and inspiring educators. And, you know, yeah, so I get to do the on the ground, see the on the ground, and then really kind of be at that big picture policy level. Sometimes it sounds boring to people doing the policy stuff, but I think it's um, really interesting and important work. Like you have to have people who want to uphold an equitable vision if you want to actually create it. So I'm honored to really be in that seat um, and to continue to get to serve in this position. It sounds amazing. (laughs) I'm glad that we have people like you helping make schools better. We definitely (laughs) need the help. Awesome. So I guess I can ask you kind of one last question to send us off. So right now you have a sex shop that is more inclusive than most places. It is unique. It's minority. What do you see the future being like a better future for sex education and for access to, I don't know, what would you call it? Sex items? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, to me, what I hope for the future and what I'm hoping that I'm, I'm helping to create is that more people have information about the full spectrum of sexuality 
And more people have that information before they really, really need it. Like I want people to know not just about, you know, STIs and reproduction, but that everybody knows how pleasure works and feels deserving of pleasure. I hope that the future, um, we have deconstructed a lot of the, you know, cis heteronormative patriarchal um, values that have imprinted on many of us around sexuality. I hope that people feel more confident in raising their children um, in sex positive ways. And that when people realize that something in their sexuality has shifted or that they want to pursue pleasure in a different way, that they feel like they are valid in those desires and that they can seek out ways to have pleasure in the ways that they want to. So, you know, that's, that's my vision for the future. And that's kind of what I'm always hoping that we are creating at Wink Wink. I think you definitely are. Sounds like a future worth fighting for, for sure. Thank you. Is there anything that I can do to support Wink Wink? For anybody who's listening to the podcast, you can find us at our website, www.winkwinkboutique.com or on social media. And I guess I just want to say that you're allowed to ask questions and you're allowed to not know things. And um, we're always a resource for anything around sexuality. And there you have it. 